And if you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John. Continuing our reading through the Gospel of John as we continue in the book of Micah for our sermon series. We'll read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Micah, one of the 12, uh, 12 uh, minor prophets. Um, Micah is a prophet to uh, the southern kingdom primarily, and he prophesies uh, largely during the second half of the 8th century and into um, the 7th century. I think that's right. Yeah, like 750 to 690. Uh, He witnessed the fall of Samaria and he exhorted uh, Judah to see uh, God's word in that fall. Um, And he is inviting indeed all peoples to see uh, in the truth of the fall of Samaria and the fall of Jerusalem, not just the random circumstances the mysterious operations of nations on an international scene, but rather confirmation of the true and living God, of his word to judge, but also his word to save. And this is to elicit from God's people a heart of faith, a heart that sees with the eyes of faith when we are so tempted to see simply with the natural understanding. And so we come to chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, where Micah continues to look past the coming judgment unto the day of salvation, unto the blessings that God had promised to deliver to a people who were going to experience the difficulties of destruction and exile. But this did not make null and void God's word. So lend your attention, this is the very word of God. 
In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, help us to understand your word and to know that it is true in our hearts and to delight in its truth and to derive from it the comfort and the consolation which you extended through your servant Micah so long ago to a people, Father, facing a a future of difficulty, to a people who saw the truth of your coming judgment and wondered if destruction would have the final word. And here you supply them with hope, a hope grounded in who you are as a faithful God who has made promises and sees them through and indeed has said yes and amen to all of your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ such that We experience and participate, even now, in the blessed hope which was set forth so long ago. May we continue, Lord, to receive from it its blessings and benefits. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I don't trust contractors. I don't trust them. But it's not for the reasons you might think. I don't trust them because I lack imagination. We had a large patch of weeds in our backyard. Sam had tried to make a little garden out of it. Sam's my wife. Uh, But the garden was quickly swallowed up by those tenacious weeds. So we decided that we'd like to scrap the whole thing to put a patio in instead. But I was skeptical. I was skeptical the whole time, not because I didn't want a patio, not because I didn't think a patio would be great. I was skeptical because I couldn't imagine how this unruly patch of weeds was going to become a patio. All I saw was the weeds, and I thought, this is only ever going to be weeds. We tried to put life here, and they killed it. (laughs) This is only ever going to be a mess. So when a contractor came and said, not only could it be a patio, but it could be a patio in about six hours, (laughs) I doubted, to say the least. And it didn't matter that the contract said he had done it a hundred of times before. It didn't matter that we even knew people, people we trusted, who said, yep, he can make a patio. (laughs) None of it mattered. All I saw was the weeds. His words Telling me of a patio meant nothing. Micah continues to invite his hearers to imagine the future. He had already done that once, confirming unto them 
that God was going to judge them just as he judged Samaria. Jerusalem was going to fall. The temple was going to fall. Israel, as they knew it, was going to fall. And it was going to be brutal. He said, that's your future. Thus says the Lord. But he doesn't leave them there. He's asking them again to imagine the future. He says, look past that judgment. Look past the burned down city, the destroyed temple, the exiled people. And what do we see? Well, from one angle, we see a burnt down city, a destroyed temple, people scattered to the four winds. But that's not what Micah wants them to see. He wants them to see the God who makes new. He wants them to see the tapestry of destruction out of which glory will come. He wants them to see the God who gathers, who makes fruitful, who does not cast off his promises, and who takes a sinful and broken people and makes them his own in the fullest sense of that word forevermore. Israel would have been in the same spot that I found myself in with that contractor. It's difficult to see that, that wonderful kingdom, a great nation with God as her king, if you would just look with the eyes of the natural understanding. I doubted the contractor because I didn't know how to do it. And quite frankly, even if I did know how to do it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. We're tempted to doubt God's promises for similar reasons, aren't we? We assume that his arm is shortened to the length of our ability, our imaginative powers. Heaven forbid. God here promises to imagine that you are wounded, alone, scattered, with no earthly prospect of reconstitution in life. And then he says, God's going to gather. God's going to make fruitful. And God's going to take you as his own and rule over you most intimately forevermore. These are the precious promises that Micah puts on display to a people who no doubt would have been yearning for some sort of hope some sort of light, those who heard the word of judgment and were terrified. And we can hear these three promises, the God who gathers, the God who rebuilds, and the God who rules, and know that these days have come upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Micah pictures it as a day still far off. He says, on that day, those last days, this end time, this period of history that's beyond the vista of your immediate horizon. On that day, God's going to do these things. And then Jesus Christ comes and he says, the hour is now here. That day is now. And so we stand as the blessed recipient of these promises made to us by the God who gathers in grace, the God who makes fruitful and multiplies and the God who rules over us for our blessedness and life. So let's consider these blessings 
each in turn. First, God gathers the weak. Look at verse 6. On that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, and the scattered I will assemble, even those whom I've injured. Micah pictures Israel's condition following the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, you're going to be defeated. You're going to be taken away from your home. You're going to be scattered to the four winds. Exile is one of those terms that we've sort of just worked into our Bible vocabulary that we use bandy about without really feeling the full weight of what was going on there. When, when little nations were exiled, they disappeared. <laughs> they were destroyed. A small people was swallowed up by a monstrous larger nation. They disappear from the pages of history. How many small nations were swallowed up by Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome? Probably more than we know. We have the records of some of them. We're like, oh, where were the Moabites? Are they still around? No, they were devoured. What about the Ammonites, the Hittites? If you get scattered as a small nation, you're gone. (laughs) Israel's future here hangs in the balance with this word that they're going to be scattered and wounded. Micah says there's a limping sheep over there in northern Mesopotamia or there in the south by the Persian Gulf or in the far east by the Zargos Mountains. A limping sheep here, a limping sheep there, a limping sheep there. It's a portrait which doesn't instill a ton of confidence. But it's the backdrop for the tenderness and the compassion that God is about to put on display and that you hear everywhere in the life of Jesus Christ. As he looks out on the crowds, what does he see? He sees sheep as if they had no shepherd. And his heart burns with compassion. He looks and he sees weakness. He sees vulnerability. He sees isolation. And his heart goes out to them. The desperate condition here that's assumed as the backdrop of the promise of the gathering God, is the condition that Christ looks upon and pours out compassion, extends tenderness to. What does Micah say here to comfort these lost sheep? God will gather. God will assemble. God will bring you unto himself. He won't lose a single sheep. Micah delights to extol this holy God. It's in his very name, isn't it? You can point out again how every oracle of judgment, every oracle of woe, every vision of destruction that Israel is invited to consider is grounded in their sin. He says, the future is bleak because of your heart and the work of your hands. And again, he says, the future is bright Because no one is like Yahweh. Even those who are going to be gathered have no reason in and of themselves to expect to live. (laughs) They have no grounds in and of themselves to assume that their situation is going to issue forth in life. Instead, it's the God who gathers who is the source of their confidence. And it's a good thing, because what other hope does a limping sheep really have? Have you ever seen a limping sheep? 
A lamb that limps? Some of you know farms. I assume you've seen animals who have little limps just hobbling along. It's a pitiful picture. I've never seen a limping lamb, but I've seen a limping Michael Lawrence. That's my young son. My little lamb of a son fell and broke his arm when he was 15 months old. He fell down some steps at a friend's house. He had to get a little cast on that pudgy little lamb-like limb. I mean, he looked helpless at full health, (laughs) let alone with this tiny little cast toddling around. It's a pitiful picture. Pitiful, but beheld by the Father. Listen, it's a heart of compassion, a heart of tenderness. And from the Father who can mend, restore, act, that's exactly what it brings forth, according to Michael. And make no mistake, Israel had grown proud. And so God purposes to show them the truth of their condition, that they are really weak. Imagine my little son rising up against me with his preposterous little arm. I'm going to take you down. I don't need you, Dad. You wouldn't last a week out there on your own, son. (laughs) And say that. But that's the truth of the matter. (laughs) So God, in his judgment, humbles them, shows them their true state, that everything that they had, everything that they needed, came from his free provision in grace. He humbles them in judgment, scatters them, wounds them, presses upon their heart the truth of their condition, and then promises to draw near to them, promises to gather them in grace as he tends to their weaknesses. We hate our weaknesses, don't we? We hate our vulnerabilities, don't we? Whether they're sort of with us all the time or revealed by circumstances. We don't like it, so what do we do? We paper over our weaknesses by thinking of ourselves in elevated terms. We considered it this very morning in Sunday school, didn't we? We experienced this or that success, and it goes straight to our heads. Yes, my hands have done this. We experience ease, and we start to get uppity with God at the audacity that he might disrupt our ease, even though he's the one who gave us comfort and good. Even as Christians, our victory over sin can become occasions for self-righteousness and to look with a lack of understanding on others who are struggling with the sin we were probably struggling with just a month before. There's no end to our uppity-ness. There's no end to our delusions, and God in kindness dispels those delusions from us to draw near unto us in that posture to which he delights to draw near. Weakness, lowliness, the humble. Micah says, at the end of the day, you're a limp and a lone sheep who has been gathered by the good shepherd, and you remain utterly dependent upon his purposes to gather and to keep. Paul writes similarly to the church, consider your calling, brothers. Corinth had gotten a little bit uppity. <laughs> so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers, boop, 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 boop. moment, ein moment, <laughs> consider your calling, brothers. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to change, shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. His ways are not our ways. He delights to glorify himself 
as the tapestry of human weakness shines forth and then His strength is made known. The Lord Jesus Christ taught the same thing, didn't He, in His discourse on Himself as the Good Shepherd? Why do the sheep live? Because the Good Shepherd lays down His life. Not because the sheep got clever and figured out a way to defeat the wolf. The sheep live because the shepherd lays down his life. Because the shepherd guards and keeps them. Because none shall snatch them from the hand of Jesus Christ. These and similar testimonies littered throughout Scripture and indeed our lives when we're seeing a little bit clearer work together to humble us in order to exalt our triune God. And that's exactly how Paul ends his exhortation in 1 Corinthians 1. Why does he delight to choose the weak? So that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So that it might be abundantly plain that it is God who gets the glory. It is the one who gathers whose name is exalted. And ruined and lost sheep are made to benefit in this goodness. But I want to draw quick attention to this last little bit in verse 6 because it's rather striking. He describes them as those whom I have injured. It's not just happenstance that they're wounded and scattered. And he doesn't even draw attention to the instruments of their wounding and scattering, whether it was Assyria or Babylon. He rips away all of the secondary causation and he sets himself forth and he says, I'm the one who did this. And Micah says, that is good news. Why? Calvin explains. Imagine if someone or something outside of God's will had harmed or scattered. What promise could God make to heal and to gather? It would not be a very sure word, would it? Or how long would he be able to hold those whom he's healed and gathered if there was a force, a power, a person who could easily undo his will or accomplish that which he did not purpose? He says, the reason I can heal, the reason I can gather is because I'm the one who wounded. I'm the one who scattered. Israel's more comfortable confessing this than we are. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue from my power. Whatever you're experiencing right now, be it weal or woe or likely some mixture of both, in the final analysis, it's from the Lord. This is true from barren wombs to fertile wombs, from singleness to marriage, from little homes to big homes, from no job to excellent job, from aches and pains to fullness of life and health, and on and on and on. If you do not know Christ, hear me. All of the good that you have is from the triune God, from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And it is all intended to bring you to repentance. All of the good that you have is from the triune God, from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And it is intended to bring you to repentance. Thus says the Lord. If you do know Christ... 
you can know that every cup that we drink is from his hand and ultimately for us is a cup of blessing because Jesus Christ drank for us the cup of wrath and supplies unto us the cup of the kingdom, the cup of life, the cup of blessing, which is our portion because of God's grace. And because he is God and there is no other, he can guarantee that all must serve his purposes. And his purposes for his people are salvation and good, as he calls us to see circumstances not through natural understanding, but the eyes of faith, which is what Micah exhorts his hearers to do next. God increases them mightily. Micah continues in the first half of verse 7. Then I will make the lame a remnant, and the scattered into a mighty nation. My children love books about construction. Anybody else? Mighty, mighty construction site? Any other fans out there? There's one book about demolition. Children, do you know this one? The trucks, they all get together to break down a big old building. And do you remember what they do with the rubble after they break it down? Well, some of it needs to be thrown away because it's good for nothing. (laughs) But some of it is sorted into piles to be reused, repurposes, built into something new. That's the image that Micah uses here. He says he's not making a complete end. He says there'll be a remnant, which is a portion that continues. And out of that continuing portion, this new thing is going to burst forth. This new thing is going to be God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham because that's what a mighty nation recalls. Where does that promise find its inception? Where does that promise come from? He makes it to Abraham in Genesis 12. He takes Abraham, incidentally, from about the same geographical location into which Israel is going, Mesopotamia, (laughs) Babylon, And what does he tell Abraham? He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Why? Because he was the cleverest of all the idolaters? Because he had somehow distinguished himself in an excellence of pagan worship and faith? No! (laughs) Because of God's sovereign purpose to bless. Because of his commitment to dwell with a people on earth. And so he gives this promise to Abraham... But it seemed suspect, given that Abraham was about a hundred years old, and Sarah was barren, pushing 90 herself. (laughs) That's the backdrop that Micah wants Israel to hear. You know this story, Israel. You know the story of life from death. You know the story of blessing from barrenness, because it sits at the very foundation of our existence as a people. And so when he promises kindness and mercy in the form of flourishing and increase and growth, he wants them to hear that he's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he's going to do it in some very unlikely circumstances. We see this fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm tempted to draw attention to the fact that great nations don't come from lone and limping lambs. Unless that lone and limping lamb is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
unless the remnant here is the Lord Jesus Christ who reconstitutes for himself the true people of God. That's what he did in his earthly life, didn't he? Why did he take 12 apostles? Probably just a coincidence. No, he reconstitutes Israel around himself. And then what happens? The shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. Do you see? It's beautiful. (laughs) And then that new thing bursts forth on the third day, and then he regathers those scattered followers. And then that becomes the foundation upon which this fruitfulness and increase and multiplication takes place in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Micah saw fuzzily what we experience clearly now as being brought in to bow the knee to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, as those sheep who were wandering unto our ruin were brought by the gospel of grace. But consider Israel's vantage point. You don't make a great nation out of a limp and lone lamb. That's impossible. It's as impossible as making a great nation out of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. (laughs) When Paul talks about that remarkable exchange in Romans 4, he says to Abraham, who could not produce life by natural, at least with Sarah, natural interactions. It says that Abraham considered his body as good as dead. He considered Sarah's womb barren. And he believed. Why? Because he didn't look at those circumstances. He didn't look at the dead body. He didn't look at the barren womb. He looked at the God who brings something out of nothing. The God who gives life from the dead. And that's what Israel is here to fix upon. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. They would have been tempted around to look around and be like, that's not happening. It's just weeds in some pastor's backyard. There's no way it's going to be anything other than weeds in a backyard. But the word of power says, this is my purpose. This is my promise. How do we respond? How would you have responded if you were Abraham? God comes to you 100 years old, 90 years old. I'm going to make you a great nation. How would you respond? What would you look at? What would your eyes fix upon? You could find the answer in how we respond to our own trials and tribulations, right? What do our eyes fix upon? What do we meditate on? Our own inabilities. The desperation of the circumstances. The fact that we know how this situation is going to end because it's ended that way a thousand times before, indeed a billion times before in human history. Now, God doesn't promise any specific outcome in any one of our trials and tribulations, but he does promise that they will lead to life for us. And he invites us to look to the one who is the resurrection and the life as the guarantee that they will issue forth in this blessed purpose. What do the eyes of faith see when you look upon weeds? (laughs) When you look upon broken relationships, wayward children, jobless seasons? We're so quick to fixate upon those circumstances and go, no, this will be my ruin. This will be my destruction. 
And God says, this will be life for you. It will issue forth in your good. Thus says the Lord. His arm is not shortened to the length of our imaginative powers. God has long been in the business of bringing forth something from nothing. Life from death. Indeed, this is one of the chief instances of his unique glory as God. Micah says, your growth from nothing to something is of the same order and magnitude as Abraham giving birth to Isaac. It is purely by the power of promise and nothing else. And the blessing continues from there, for he closes by saying that this new nation will have God as her king. That's what he closes in the last half of verse 7 and then in verse 8. Then Yahweh will rule over them on Mount Zion from now until forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, fortress of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall surely come the former dominion, the kingdom to the daughter of Jerusalem. You can hear the same image, the same dynamics as the remnant, something new out of something old, both continuity and discontinuity. In this new nation, God is going to be king over them. That's what it says, Yahweh will be king over you. That's not God's sovereignty as creator, where everything ultimately serves his purposes. This is God's new creation rule, his redemptive rule, where it's not just that his purposes come to fruition, but rather that it's, his will is done willingly and with delight. His rule is evidenced in what we saw earlier in chapter 4, where it pictures all the peoples coming and saying, let's go to the mountain of the Lord so he can teach us his ways, so we can follow after these ways of life so that we can learn from him and bow to him and receive from him and recognize that he is our good. That's the rule that he envisions here. But it's also noticed not God's rule by representative either. It says Yahweh is going to rule over them. It's a direct image. This new nation will be ruled directly by Yahweh. And yet at the same time, it says it's a return to the former dominion. Micah pictures the future in the terms of their glorious past, the glory of the kingdom of David when he took Jerusalem by faith. The glory of the kingdom of Solomon when north and south were united and the nations were starting to come and see, oh, there's no God like the God of Israel. This glory is like no other glory. Micah pictures the future in the terms of the past where this glory returns once more to Zion. He says, on that day, God will rule over his people from Mount Zion, and the glory of the former kingdom will be restored. Where do we see God ruling his people directly and the offspring of David sitting upon an eternal throne? Where do we see the glory of David's kingdom restored, indeed surpassed, in a kingdom that is now comprised 
by those of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and which God says will never fade away, for it is an everlasting kingdom. Indeed, a kingdom of joy and righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. We see it in the rule and the reign of the Son of God, David's Son and David's Lord. Jesus Christ, true God, true man, ruling over us, fulfilling God's promises, proving that he does not cast us off, but rather is faithful to what he promises to do. And Micah says that this time will be unbroken from now until forevermore. He envisions it as a future time coming, but it is our present. The day which would have been the fountain of their hopes is the source of our life. The faithful in Micah's time would have seen this day of redemption, this day of salvation, and their hearts would have longed for it, just as Abraham would have longed to see the day of Jesus Christ and indeed saw it from afar and rejoiced. The day into which even angels long to look as they delight to rejoice in God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ and his gospel. This day is ours now for us. We're not waiting for a golden age where the choicest blessings of God are finally open. The choicest blessings of God are ours now in Jesus Christ. In forgiveness and peace. In righteousness and holiness. In true worship in spirit and in truth. That's ours already. Now by faith. But I'll end just with a quiet exhortation. The vision of blessing which this oracle presents centers in this image of God ruling. It says God will rule over us. Jesus Christ will rule over us. What does the son say? He says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly. Our blessing comes to us as we submit to the Son. Our life comes to us as we bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. We fulfill our purposes as God grants us the Spirit to say, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, we offer our lives in reasonable worship to this God who does wonderful things and will do wonderful things to his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word of hope and the way that it sustained your people of old and confirmed your excellencies as their holy God who had made promises to Abraham and even in the face of corruption and sin and ugliness. You fulfilled your word, your purposes to bless. And we are the beneficiaries, Lord, as we have seen this day in the Lord Jesus Christ come to pass as he is the good shepherd who left the 99 to retrieve the one. He continues to bring ruined and lost sheep unto himself to know the excellencies of the good shepherd as the one who lays down his life and keeps us and guides us 
even as he intercedes for us now. We pray, Father, that you would grant us the heart to bow, to see our blessedness in being servants of Christ, subjects of this blessed kingdom. We delight that this has commenced, Lord, and we ask that you would strengthen it until the day when it becomes all in all. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.